Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Hello and welcome to The Crux. This is Gary Sheffer and I'm here with Mike Fernandez. Hi, Mike. Hi, how's it going, Gary? We're really excited to have with us this week on The Crux, John Awada. John is the executive director of the Data and Trust Alliance, which is a consortium formed in 2020 by leading companies to develop responsible data and AI practices. In addition, he is an executive fellow at the Yale School of Management. John retired a few years ago from IBM as its inaugural chief brand officer after 35 years with the company. At IBM, he led the digital transformation of marketing as well as communications repositioning the company at key inflection points. Many of you will remember things like Smarter Plan and Watson, which IBM launched during John's tenure. I was going to list all of the Hall of Fames that John is in as a communicator and a marketer, but you know, it's probably easier just to list the ones he's not in. John's, I don't think you're in the PGA Hall of Fame yet. Are, are you, Are you, John? I. Uh, no, no. <laughs> maybe one of these days, John, uh, you'll make it there anyway. We all know John, the folks who are listening, Page Society Hall of Fame, CMO Club Hall of Fame, etc. Today we're going to talk to John about data, algorithms, and trust, and how it relates to business and communications. You know, this is one of the most important topics that we all need to get smart on, including me. And anyone that has heard John speak or has followed his career knows how well he can communicate science and complex ideas in layman's terms. I remember, John, many years ago, probably 10 or 12 years ago, you came to one of the consortium meetings that we had, which was a collection of big companies. We brought our communicators together. And I always remember this. You brought in, I think it was a Christmas card or a holiday card, and it had one of those chips in it where you opened it up and it played a song or something. And you talked about there was as much technology in that chip as there was in the Apollo mission that went to the moon. <laughs> so it's uh, that's stuck in my mind for all these years, John. So uh, <laughs> that's an example of John's ability to connect with people. So John, welcome to the crux. Thank you, Gary. Hi, Mike, Hi. Gary. Thanks for having me on your show. It's going to be fun. So listen, the first thing I have to ask is this what you expected retirement to look like, John? Well, let me ask you, Gary. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, look, it is exactly what everyone says it will be, which is you'll just trade one super large something for a portfolio of other things. And for some people, it could be golf and mm -hmm. family and 
you know, vacations and reading, and that's wonderful. This is not exactly what I thought I would be doing, but I knew that I would, you know, have a portfolio <laughs> of things that would keep me interested and in, in learning. But no, as, as I said when I left, uh, <laughs> I don't have a plan. I have some hopes, but I don't have a plan. And sure enough, you know, it, it sort of un, un revealed itself as we went along here. It's been four years. <laughs> So, John, let's talk about one of those items in your portfolio. Let's start with your work at the Yale School of, of Management, where you're an executive fellow. Yeah. Much of that work centers on stakeholder capitalism, kind of how best to manage and enable it. Tell us a bit more about that. Sure. I'll bridge it to the first question about retirement and maybe a word of advice for those of you who are, you know, you know, could be it could be decades away for you, or it could be you know months away for you. This is in the category of a very happy thing that I did not plan for. So when I was um, in the job, running marketing and communications, I got invited to Yale to come speak at marketing classes. That is not unusual. It's like being invited to your classes to speak as a CCO. You know, you just you do it because it's enjoyable and and why not. So I was doing that for a few years, and when I got to know the faculty, some professors and so forth, I am not a Yaley, you know, I went to school out in California, you know, but I got to know the faculty from just going up there and talking to students probably once a year. When I put the word out that I was retiring, one of the first people I heard from was Professor Ravi Dar, who was this professor of marketing. And he said, I don't know what you plan to do in retirement, but would you like to do something with us? And I said, well, what do you mean? And he says, well, let's talk. And one thing led to another, and I became a fellow or executive in residence. And for the first couple of years, it was delightfully my Tuesdays during the terms. I would drive up to New Haven from, from my home here, about, about a 45-minute drive, and I would hang out. Um, I would drop in on classes. <laughs> I would lecture upon request. I would do roundtables with students and faculty. And, and as they told me, it was a passport to the life of the, of the university. Well, if for those of you who think that might be appealing to you, my advice to you is if you get invited to come and speak at classes and so forth, uh, say yes, because you never know, you know what kind of relationships you build. Back to your question, Mike. After two years or so of doing that, Ravi and other faculty said, um, would you like to do something like a project? Would you like to focus on anything? And I said, yes, I would. I would like to focus on stakeholder capitalism, but from the viewpoint of practitioners, the viewpoint of the executive committee, because like you, Gary, Mike, you know how decisions are made in executive committees. And here we are with stakeholder capitalism. I don't want to get into a debate about economic theory. I, I don't want to get into debate about things that are beyond my competence. But I would like to understand what is needed beyond a commitment and even passion for creating value for society and employees and customers and investors, which to me sounds like the basics of good business. But other than like giving the speech with great passion, what else do you need to have to be good at it? That's right. And uh, they said, oh, great. So they, you know, they, they generously supported it. And I got a nice gift from the Ogilvy Foundation, courtesy of John um, Seifert of, of Ogilvy, and got to work. What I did it was what I think you would do, what you're doing right now. <laughs> I interviewed CEOs. 
and I, I started with the CEOs uh, I know, and then that grew. And, and to date, I've interviewed more than 60 mm -hmm. of them, and I asked them the same things. Aside from being committed to the concept of creating value for stakeholders, what else is needed to be expert at it? And boy, do they want to talk. Mm -hmm. And when you do 60 of these interviews, a pattern emerges about the how. And it's quite striking um, and frankly recognizable. Things like you need to understand your core raison d'etre as a company. What do you uniquely do? And how can you apply that competitive or comparative advantage to issues, to create value for customers, to, to win over employees to work for you? I mean, you know how CEOs think. They want to win. They want to win employees, they want to win investors, they want to win the right to operate in society. They don't think about, you know, value sharing, you know, they think about value creation. And in this world of, of complex stakeholders, they have a lot, they have a mm -hmm. lot to say about it. Yeah, well, to me, it's always been interesting because I do think that there is some natural alliance, particularly when you're starting to talk about things like sustainability and ESG on one hand and talk about the value of the business. If we go back to the core accounting concept of the ongoing concern uh, concept that's embedded in accounting, you only keep financials because you want to sustain as an operation. And part of sustaining as an operation are a lot of the things that are embedded in the discussion around ESG. What I'd love to ask you about, though, is given the pressures on several fronts to be shareholder and ESG focused, and at the same time deliver the kind of value, including quarterly financial performance, in line with or exceeding sometimes analyst expectations, how are CEOs feeling about all this? And is there a true balancing in this reality that meets both the needs of shareholders and society? It, it may seem overly simplistic, but what, when I've asked CEOs that very question, Mike, when you as a CEO mm -hmm. lead a company at the intersection of all these different stakeholders, inevitably there are competing or opposing interests and expectations. Is that a world of uh, smart trade-off making or the finding of common ground, or is it something else? And um, Brian Moynihan of Bank of America um, said the following, stakeholder capitalism is the genius of the and and the false trade-off of the or. As CEO, we have to tell the team, we have mm -hmm. to ask the team, we want to do both. We want to do both, and we need to think differently. We need innovation. John V. Meyer, former global CEO of KPMG, said, a CEO, every day, people would come in and say, do you pick A or do you pick B? And, and, and he said, I always said, yes, both. And they say, impossible. <laughs> and he would say, there's enough smart people in, in this firm to think differently about it. It's a, it's a kind of design problem. And over and over again, I've seen examples from um, Starbucks, in Nike, financial services, pharma, that CEOs, you know how CEOs are. <laughs> they come into the executive committee and say, we are going to deliver results and find a way to do this 
and without compromising that. I'm putting three of you together or five of you together. Go solve it. But I think part of that is not just requesting it or edicting it. It's actually putting the right team together and giving them and framing the problem that way and giving them the authority and power and in, in, in the, in the confidence, frankly, that they can find a way to solve it. It's like, I mean, <laughs> many CEOs actually cite that scene in Apollo 13, you know, the movie where there is this moment where the carbon monoxide is building up in the capsule or something and the filter mm -hmm. is failing. And they say to a team, this is all they have up in the capsule. You know, you've got to figure out a way to make this fit in that hole and you got an hour or they're they're lost. And the team mm -hmm. dumps on the table all these things that are in the capsule and they find a way. And I, it tells you something when so many CEOs cite that scene to say, yeah. you know, I want the team to think differently. Mm -hmm. It's a kind of innovation. Well, and, and it's about how do you how do you isolate and blend timing considerations and priorities in order to resolve because ultimately it seemingly comes down to resolving a set of priorities over some set of time frame in order <laughs> to exact what it is you're after right and and it may be that certain things can be done within a two-year time frame versus other things can be done in a one-month time frame that's true. And this is where, you know, you have a lot of CEOs who talk about investors and expectations. And, and many CEOs say you, you have to, you get the investors you, you deserve. And if you say up front, this is what you can expect mm -hmm. of the company. And if you don't really like that, then I suggest we're not the investment for you. And you get to say that early in your tenure or late in your tenure, right? You don't get to say that when you're struggling. <laughs> when you're struggling as a CEO, that sounds like you know an excuse. But when you come into the job and you do your listening tour and you assess everything, you, you get you know you get to come out and say, "This is where we are. These are the hard realities, and this is." But I have confidence in our future, and therefore this is the time frame. And some people will not accept that and others will. I mean, that's a pretty consistent mm -hmm. message too. But then you have to deliver. Then you have to deliver. Mm -hmm. John, John, what's the, before we switch topics here to the data and, uh, and trust alliance, what's the output of this amazing work and these amazing discussions that you're having? I think there are three things that we, um, we want to do. And I'm pretty confident that we're, we're weeks or months away from establishing a formal program on this work at Yale. But the, the things that we wanna do is, in terms of output, Gary, are case studies. In fact, we've got case studies in the pipeline that are under development from terrific companies, some of them I've mentioned to you. Those are case studies that are exactly what we are talking about a minute ago. The, the conjoined interests of stakeholders and how you solve or create value from them. You know, and I, I think mm -hmm. value creation is the key, not messaging or reporting and all that. It's or, or certainly not virtue signaling and purpose washing and all that stuff that often gets in, into the space here. <laughs> We're going to be hit with a tidal wave of ESG reports. You know that, you know, and it's starting to happen. And yesterday's CSR report is this year's, you know, ESG <laughs> exactly. report. And CEOs don't talk about that. They, they just don't. They talk about winning. And that means creating value. The difference here in value creation yeah. is you're creating value from conjoined stakeholder interests. That's interesting, 
right? It's in, it's it's saying, Starbucks. You know, we have four hundred thousand family-owned coffee farms. They aren't making enough money. That's a problem. Two, we have consumers who want more high-quality coffee. Mm-hmm. Three, we have a commitment to investors to grow every everything. And we have our purpose, and we have our values. Now, a a typical approach to business is, let's solve for the supply chain coffee grower problem. Do we pay them subsidies? Do we, what do we do? And then over here, we got to figure out how to grow the business, and over here, we have to figure out how to make the consumers happy. Mm -hmm. What Kevin Johnson did is say, actually, those are all aspects of the same opportunity. These are not unrelated. I'm going to put a team together, you solve for it. And the answer was regenerative agriculture. So, so we could just give you more money, but it's going to come out either of the consumer prices or the shareholder. Mm-hmm. We're not going to do that. So how do we actually help the farmers earn more money? It's by helping them grow better coffee beans with greater yields. How do we do that? How about giving them skills and technology and training? And that way they'll actually grow more coffee and better coffee, which makes the consumers happy. We, you know, we don't have to take it with grows, grows revenue, grows profit, but it means in a kind of innovation. That's going to be a case study. Fascinating. Nike did the same thing with low carbon shoes. You know, the, the team I talked to there said, you know, we are an incubation team. Normally what we'd come up with are concept cars. This time we didn't want to do that. We didn't want to hand make a low carbon shoe, mm-hmm. meaning a shoe made out of scraps, you know, leftovers. Right. We wanted to make a shoe made out of leftover threads and, and foam rubber, but we also wanted to make a shoe you could actually wear <laughs> and, and run in <laughs> and be comfortable. And we wanted to make a shoe that our manufacturers could actually make without retooling their entire you know, manufacturing line and that made money and that could be shipped in one <laughs> box, not two. And you see what's happening here is they rewrote the brief. Right. In every case here, they rewrote the brief to address multiple stakeholder requirements. Exactly. And those are going to be cases. Secondly, we want to create um, education help, whether it's executive education or mm-hmm. uh, MBA education or from any, any way we can. By the way, all this is open sourced, you know, which is, which is great. Right. I mean, I, I can't speak for other other universities, but Yale wants to make all of this freely available. Which is great, and the third is to is to fuel some academic research, which is to be determined. But I'm interested, as I mentioned from the start, in practitioner help. Excellent. Well, John, I could say as a professor at a communication school, those case studies would be highly popular with students. You know, we, we do have some trouble getting beyond the concept of stakeholder capitalism in, in our classrooms sometimes, and and it's always easy to see the missteps. Stakeholder capitalism is there, you know, on the front page of the newspaper going viral. But to see it practiced in a way that is economic and smart and good across the set of stakeholder platforms, I think would be fantastic for future practitioners to hear. Hope so, Gary. I mean, oh, I mentioned, I failed to mention one of the biggest things we hope to produce, which are tools. One, I'll mention two real quick. One is, I think, pretty straightforward, but it doesn't exist as far as we can. I've okay. heard in the, all these discussions. I'm calling a materiality assessment tool. And you, you both did this for your companies. Um, I did it at IBM, which is, you know, typical request is, 
every week there's some new issue in society that employees or other stakeholders expect me as a CEO to speak out on or the company to make a position on. And some of them are obvious. You know, John Donahue at Nike said Nike uses two things more than anything else, leather and plastic. So he, you know, <laughs> Nike cannot be not only not comment on, on those things, they have to be a leader in that. But what about all these other issues? You know, how, how does a company or a CEO decide what is, quote, material to their business and to their stakeholders. Right. Now, you both could say, well, here's how you do it. You know, what is your business? What are your values? What are your principles? What is your history? But believe it or not, there just there aren't too many approaches or tools or methods. So we're, we're, we're putting one together. And the other is what we were talking about before, a kind of new design methodology, stakeholder design versus user-centered design or human-centered design. Right. So we, we're having fun with that. Fascinating. Well, there's so much to talk about, John, with you. Let's switch over to your work with the Alliance. So as I understand it, John, this uh, these data algorithms and artificial intelligence and how all of that relates to decision-making are wrapped up in the work you're doing with the Alliance, which again was formed in 2020. It's a not-for-profit, 23 companies, a core group of businesses such as Walmart, GM, Comcast, Pfizer, and others. Could you just like describe the mission uh, and vision of the DTA and, and tell us how it came to be? Yeah, this is back to your first question, Gary. Uh, <laughs> so, um, you know, did I ever set out to say, hey, I'm going to help establish a consortium of these companies to think about data and A practices and be an executor? No, I, no, not at all. What happened was, you know, you, you, you stay close to people that um, you have relationships with. And I'm really fortunate to have worked for several of our CEOs, one of whom, Sam Palmisano, who led IBM for 10 years. And he's close with several CEOs, including Ken Chenault of late of American Express, former mm -hmm. board member of IBM. And in just staying close to Sam, who's just a great guy. He started to say to me in these conversations back in 2018, 2019, that so many CEOs that he and Ken Chenault were talking to are almost saying, wow, we're glad we're not Facebook. You know, boy, I wouldn't want to be Facebook. Mm -hmm. And Sam's reaction, Ken's reaction was, you're going to be Facebook. And they were like, well, what do you mean? We're not a social media company. And says, well, aren't you collecting, aren't you collecting data about patients, about drivers, about employees, about students, and all sorts of information about consumers? And aren't you betting your company's future on that? And they'd say, yes, you know, I don't want to be Amazon or Spotify or Airbnb. And Sam says, if you don't get your act together and demonstrate responsibility, you're going to be testifying before Congress. You're going to be you know, you're going to be collateral damage because of regulation that gets created over here, but it will affect you over there. And they said, "Well, what do we ought to do about mm -hmm. it?" And Sam Sam asked me, "Well, what what, what do we ought to do about it?" <laughs> <laughs> I go, "I don't want to get involved with this, Sam. You know, and he, but it is interesting." And. I think Sam played me like a fiddle because he knows that if there's one thing that uh, you can get me to spend time on are things that are interesting. Right. And sure enough, I, I said, you ought to talk to your CEO friends about forming a group 
and demonstrating responsible behavior with data and AI, a kind of self-regulation, if you will, but demonstrate that at least a core group of companies are doing it the right way. And it isn't about lobbying or about PR or any of that stuff. It's about actually doing it. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, it's a new peer group. You need to form a new peer group. And what will define the peer group are companies that are betting their futures on the responsible use of data and AI. And he's like, that's a great idea. Ken, Ken and I are in, so give us the list. <laughs> anyway, um, I think they just walked up. I think they just walked up to some of their um, CEO friends and, you know, I gave them a list because it was cross industry. Yeah. You know, it was Doug, Doug McMillan at Walmart and Mary Barra at GM and Alex Gorski at J&J. And once you got a core group saying, let's kick the tires of this idea, we're, you know, let's explore it. I was asked to shepherd the working group. I didn't want to do that. I did it. They created a charter all during the pandemic, um, which was remarkable, and um, presented it back to the CEOs in the summer of 2020. And they said, we're in. And I said, great, I'm out, I'm done. And Sam says, now please lead it. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I'm not doing that either. But I, I did because I had spent so much time it's on interesting. it. interesting. Lear yeah. Learning a lot, you know, learning a lot. And um, so I've been doing it now since we got operational in the fall of 20, uh, 2020. So, so to set a base for our listeners, and that includes me, how... John, how can you, would you describe or explain how data AI are driving decision-making yeah. in, in a, any, any company? Okay. So I'd, I'd ask, um, I'd ask you to set aside your, your thinking about AI for a second. Okay. Uh, All right. And think instead about, about the internet. Okay. Just as a, as a basis of comparison. When all said and done, one of the things the internet did was collapse the cost of a transaction to near zero and made it ubiquitous. And, and you say, what is a transaction? Mm -hmm. Well, obviously, it's putting things in a shopping basket, but it's also driver's license and, and getting a college degree and making a reservation <laughs> and, and a query called a search or posting a photograph, posting a comment and publishing the transaction cost collapsed to near zero, which made it applicable across every form of transaction, right? And it destroyed barriers to entry and all sorts of things. But the core idea was this, the transaction. What is the equivalent now with AI maturing because so much data is available to feed AI models, which was always a gap, and processing power is in the cloud, mm -hmm. not in a supercomputer, and storage is in the cloud, you know, not on your desktop. So you have the conditions for AI to become what? Like transactions, you know, during the past 25 years, the cost of making a prediction will go to near zero and the accuracy of the prediction will approach 100%. Well, what's a prediction? Prediction is that is the proper diagnosis. That is the right product to put on that shelf in that store that is the price. That is the supply okay. chain status. You know, this is the price for that policy. This is the loan you should extend to that small <laughs> business or that consumer, right? That's a prediction. And when you think about a prediction, 
being cheap and also accurate, it means that like the becoming digital, you know, became pervasive in a company, predictions will come, will pervade every aspect of a company from marketing and sales to supply chain, to the treasury department, to it'll be everywhere. And that's why all these companies, so if we think about Siri and self-driving cars yeah. and all that being AI, I would ask you to set that over here as a class of uses, but think more about how we can take advantage of the profound phenomenon of prediction. And I think that's that that's the core thing that unites all these companies who otherwise have nothing in common, right? Right. What 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 does Nike and Pfizer and 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 American Express and Comcast have in common and Starbucks and UPS? Very little. So one of the applications of the work of the Data and Trust Alliance has been on the topic of AI and bias related to hiring. There was a great New York Times article. Uh, Ken Chenault was quoted in that, and he made a point that this was not about adopting a set of principles, but actually implementing something concrete. Jack, tell us a little bit about how, how that gets done. This is a connector back to the Yale work because you, you know, the three of us are practitioners. Well, now you're you're also academics, but uh, you know I, I I I'm a practitioner, and when we formed the Data and Trust Alliance with these um, companies, they each the CEOs, by the way, de designated somebody to represent the company in the day to day work of the alliance, and they're typically very senior people. Um, and what's great about who they whom they picked, cross functional, so we have. Chief data officers, chief technology officers, but we also have heads of, you know, we have general counsels, we have uh, P&L owners. And when we got together, because we became operational, I said, you know, we ought to have some KPIs. I, I suggest we have just one. And it's adoption. It's adoption by practitioners within your companies. And they all said, sounds good. <laughs> that, was just, that was it. You know, I, <laughs> that was pretty good for a KPI discussion. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you something. When you say, you know, we're, we're, we're only going to focus on one thing, and that's, that's adoption by practitioners in your companies, that's, that actually is a very high bar. Exactly. And uh, we then picked our first project, which was the use of data and AI by your HR functions. We, we, con you know, we conducted a survey of the HR functions and learned, yes, they are using data and algorithms today in many places across the whole spectrum of decisions related to workforce. And within three years, it's going to be everywhere. We then learned that, do you buy these or do you make these applications? Mostly buy them. Um, what's your greatest concern about the use of this? Number one concern was bias, perpetuation of bias, unfair bias. Then we realized that they had not put in place anything to help them evaluate their vendors around bias in their products and services. And so um, the project was, let's, de let's develop vendor criteria and evaluation. And, um, but because it was adoption, not principles or a toolkit or a framework, we had to, you can imagine, uh, Mike and Gary, engaging with the procurement departments and the HR functions 
<laughs> oh, I love it. <laughs> but you know, you know what was turned out to be a really good thing about that is we're talking about well-oiled machines. You know, Walmart procurement. Imagine, you know, how well-oiled they are, and the HR function and Walmart's the second largest <laughs> employer in the country, right? And so they they immediately understood where in the processes and workflow you would you would begin to insert or adapt to evaluate vendors against new criteria. So while it took months to, to get this together, months, almost a whole year, I think what Ken was commenting on was that it's now operational. You know, it's, it's not a pledge or a voluntary thing. It's inside of these operations, which is a great learning. Well, you know, you're talking about common threads, you know, you're talking about very, very different companies and very different industries. But one thing that kind of serves as a, a common backbone are a lot of the functional activities and areas. So to me, you know, this effort uh, that's focused on HR and focused on selection of, uh, of vendors makes, makes all the sense in the world. The Alliance's anti-bias effort, I, I think, is to be commended on many levels. But just as this conversation sort of shows, it, it also unveils what some of us learned long ago, and for me, very long ago in a computer programming class, and that's the aphorism of, uh, of Geigo, you know, garbage in, garbage out, right? You know, many large companies today are using AI to manage a lot of their functions, to deal with lots of uh, business decision that's decision making that's somewhat repetitive. It is in many ways improving everything from marketing to safety and doing so with great ease and at great speed. That also would seem to add a lot of risk into the process. And then when we start thinking about mergers and acquisitions and, 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 and various kinds of business com combinations, it would seem that questions around IP ownership, reliability of data itself, the algorithmic rules being used, cybersecurity, accountability around all of that, even basic antitrust, all factor into this world. I know the Alliance has begun to do some work in this space of what some are calling the new diligence. What can you tell us about that effort and the promise it might hold in addressing some of these risks? Yeah, exactly right. My, I mean, first of all, we don't want to be the anti-bias alliance. And, right. And one of the things that I would just say I've learned in, in, the, in working with these companies now for a few years it's, it reminds me very much of the beginning of the internet era. And when you get on, um, you know, back then people were doing the air quotes around terms a lot because there yep. was a new vocabulary, right? Like we need somebody to be like our webmaster and they'd put their fingers up, right? We, we need, we need like an internet czar, you know, like that. And, <laughs> and what's happening here is, you know, I'm like, we're all on zoom. I'm watching, you know, these senior executives from these diverse companies putting their fingers up saying, you know, we, we have a problem, we have a need and we've solved it by creating a new role or having a new initiative. Well, if you swing over to M and a, um, here's the thesis, a pretty 
pretty straightforward. You know, as as these companies are transforming themselves, M and A is part of their strategy. Increasingly, the companies they're targeting for investment and acquisition are these newer businesses that are powered by data and AI. And yes, we validated that. Question: When you do due diligence by your M and A teams, by your corporate development teams, is existing due diligence pr criteria and process adequate to properly evaluate these new kinds of companies? And we heard immediately, no. In fact, they've had some recent bad M and A experience, and when they did the post mortem. They found just that. When they parachuted in their investment bankers and their lawyers and finance people, they did not have the right lenses to evaluate both the valuation and the risks associated with these new um, business models. And in that regard, it's like HR. You know, when we built this, um, these safeguards for the HR functions, we learned they turned out to be 55 questions in, 30, in 13 categories. When we were done with that, we heard from the HR people and the procurement people you know, we could ask these questions, but we don't understand some of these questions. And when the answers come back from the vendors, we'll never understand the answers. You, can you also build some education for us? Well, <laughs> you know, take that and now apply it to your M&A team. And they're saying, we don't need 55 questions. We need to understand things like model evaluation, right? We don't even understand what these terms mean. And... I think that if I now think about just overall here, this era that we're embarking on, it's a new business literacy. And it's not the literacy of math and, and algorithms. It's a new literacy of the new HR, the new M&A, the new marketing and communications. And just like we saw 25 years ago, it's going to happen. Hopefully, we're not going to take 25 years to figure this one out. <laughs> I'm going to stop doing air quotes, John, now, whenever I talk about these topics, because I'm still doing it. I'm still talking about webmasters, John, with, you know, rabbit ears. Well, I want to that, Gary, real quick. So in, in the HR work, we formed this great working team, like a dream team of, of uh, from the from the member companies. We had an HR leader from Nike. We had an AI distinguished engineer from IBM. We had a procurement officer from CVS Health. We had a senior vice president at Regions Financial, right? Senior vice president of mm -hmm. model risk evaluation. I, did you know that there was a senior vice president in charge of evaluating the mathematical algorithmic models for risk? Absolutely not. Okay. Well, this is a, this is a glimpse now, right? This is a glimpse of, of the new professions. Wow. Wow. And just hearing that, John, it makes me, it would make me feel more comfortable, <laughs> you know, honestly, that there are people, uh, you know, because you always wonder about the human element in this, of course, as opposed to the things you hear from some critics of AI who are prominent and maybe exaggerating some of the capabilities and the lack of human oversight of that. I do want to ask, John, Given all this, sort of take it from the other side. Last year, a couple of people who worked uh, in the uh, Biden administration proposed essentially an AI bill of rights uh, for people. And they equated the power of technology and AI to the massive power of government. And here's what they said in proposing this idea of a bill of rights. 
in the 21st century, we need a bill of rights to guard against the power of technologies we have created. Our country should clarify the rights and freedoms we expect data-driven technologies to respect. So you had mentioned this earlier, John, was just sort of, you know, there might be regulations over here, right, et cetera, and which is always happening in, in most every industry. What's your thinking and the alliance's thinking on sort of a data and AI bill of rights? Yeah, when you when you look at what they're proposing, it's consistent with what these companies by and large believe. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, in the wake of the announcement in December, you know, that New York Times article was read by many, we heard from three parts of the federal government within a day or two. <laughs> One was the White House, you know, the Office of Science and Technology Policy. The other was the EEOC and and the other right. was the Department of Labor. And they all got together and wanted to learn a lot more about what we had done. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, when, when you get a call like that, you sort of wonder, well, I wonder what's going to happen now, you know, what they're interested in. Yeah, exactly. And we, <laughs> we met with Chair Burroughs of the EEOC, and we met with, with the White House, and they had two interests. One is we need to learn a lot more about the, the benefits and risks of the use of the technology, because it does seem to hold promise of having more diverse workforces, you know, of countering historic bias and of countering unconscious bias. But on the other hand, it can make things a whole lot worse. So we'd like to learn what you learned. The second thing, which was quite amazing, was we heard from them that the U.S. government, Walmart may be the second largest employer, Mm -hmm. but the U.S. government is the largest employer, (laughs) and they themselves use technology, and they themselves don't have you know, safeguards in place. Interesting. And they wanted to know if perhaps we'd be willing to share what we had created. And the answer, of course, was yes. So those discussions are continuing and we welcome them. Excellent. That's excellent. That sounds like an excellent outcome, John, when you get a call from three federal agencies or federal representatives. <laughs> it could go the other way. <laughs> yeah. We'll, we'll see where it goes. Uh, it's that it's it's that old old wag about we're from the government and we're here to help you. <laughs> so so John, you, you've you've in in some sense throughout your career, but clearly in your new career, doing a lot of work in technology and AI. What are you most excited about in terms of AI and its future? I, I think we would all agree with this, right? The, there is a terrible, real economic and human cost to not getting it right. You know, when you, when, you, when you approximate, when you average, when you go with gut and intuition, <clears throat> um, you get the diagnosis wrong, right? You hire the wrong people or you don't hire people who could be fantastic. Absolutely. You set prices incorrectly. You develop the wrong product, <laughs> You, you, your forecasts are off, um, you know, and, and it's everything from lives to economic things. So the promise of AI is more precision, more accuracy, and timeliness. You know, that's the promise of it. And I, if I were to just say one thing that I've learned in the past couple of years here, I always thought this conversation was around data. Mm-hmm. I'd make here. a little prediction, if I may. We're going to be hearing more and more, you know, data and privacy are never going to stop and they should never stop. 
but we're going to hear more and more about algorithmic safety. AI is algorithms and data, right? That's all it is. It's, it's algorithms and data. And the algorithms, algorithms are, are the, really the vital thing here. You know, it is, it is true, Mike, you know, garbage in, garbage out, data quality, data sets, historic biases and data, who owns the data, is it clean, you know, all, all that is true. But in the end, the data feeds a model. The model is an algorithm or algorithms. I think just from a standpoint of, I'm doing the air quotes thing, Gary, you know, <laughs> I think we're going to hear a lot more in the future about, do I trust your algorithm? How was your algorithm trained? You know, who, who, who trained your algorithm? Can we audit your algorithm? Show me your algorithm versus, versus data ownership yeah, exactly. and who has my data and what are you doing with my data? I think we're going to add that. We're going to add something to that. And correctly too, correctly. So that's wow. the promise of this: is is more precision, more accuracy, better outcomes. Yeah. So my last question, and as you might guess from me, it's two pronged. But what should marketers and communicators be doing about AI and its implications? And then I'll come back to my second one. Well, you know, I'll, I'll, I think two things, and I'll draw a parallel to social media. One is figure out how to use it. And the second is figure out what the risks are to your company because your company is going to use it. Think about social media. You know, for those who said, eh, it doesn't, it's not relevant, it's not relevant to my business. Well, you know, name a marketing communications team that ha is an expert at the use of social media. And the second is social media can bite you pretty hard. Well, every company is going to be using data and algorithms and it's, you know, for great benefit, um, but also there are going to be risks and exposures. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and so from that standpoint, you know, reputation and brand, you know, that's going to be another risk. The second is we better figure out how to use this in our work. Yeah. yeah. What kinds of AI enabled marketing and communications activities do you see as being on the horizon? What are kind of the, the, the next journeys in this pathway? Well, the big one as a, as a, just an overall thing is personalization. You know, the, the, da the date, we know this, right? The data already uh, enables uh, marketing and communications teams to know us pretty well. Big debate as to, you know, how much they should know and do on that. But nonetheless, the promise there is personalization. And then I think what algorithms add to that are inferences. So it's one thing to personalize an ad or personalize uh, an offer or information. But these algorithms now are going to predict many things about us, right? It's, they're going to predict our needs. They're going to predict our wants. They're going to predict our location. They're going to predict our emotional state. The algorithms see, the data may not, the data by definition is historical or at best real time. The algorithms now will predict based on that the future. And so if you're a marketing and a communications professional, I don't think we'll be in, I don't think you'll be a great professional in the future if you don't understand how to you know, use these tools. You've heard me say this before, perhaps, you know, is, is my job, am I going to get replaced by an AI or a robot? My answer is, chances are you are never going to be replaced by a, a, an AI. You're going to be replaced by somebody who knows how to use that AI <laughs> to do your job better. And, and I think, you know, personalization <laughs> is just one of the aspects of the fact that we, um, we better, or one of the promises here that we better figure out how to use. Well, John, I'm exhausted. <laughs> I, I, 
No, seriously, it's it is really, as I said at the beginning, your ability to explain these things is really remarkable. It's clearly something we should all be thinking about as practitioners, and it's really so helpful, I think, to everyone. And I want to thank you for joining us on The Crux and for taking time out of your retirement to do that. <laughs> I look forward to some of the things that you've described, uh, seeing some of the things that you've described on stakeholder capitalism. And I look forward to all that. So, John, thanks for being on The Crux. It was fun. Gary, Mike, anything for you guys. And uh, enjoy thanks, a lot. I hope we're all enjoying our retirement. Air quotes. Air quotes. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, now. Take care. Take care. Thanks for listening to The Crux, and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.